Well, uh, grateful once again uh, to be uh, bringing God's word to you. Uh, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and just by way of introduction, we've come to what I, I consider the crux. And in, in many ways, that's a really good word because it's all about the cross. Uh, we're going to be looking at the cross of Jesus Christ today, even though we're not at the cross. But it's at this moment in the Gospel of Mark that there's a turning point, a turning away from the question, who is Jesus? We get that answer here in our text. Two, uh, the identity and character revealed in his person and his mission as he heads to the cross. And from here on out, it'll be looking forward to that work. So with that, let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 27 all the way to Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Mark 8, 27 to Mark 9, 1. And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others uh, one of of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said plainly, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And Peter said, by turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again I ask that you would help me. uh, Help us to see Christ and to see the glory of the cross. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we can look out at our world and we can see all the many problems with it. We've been talking about that for weeks and months. People are deeply divided, politically divided, racially divided, economically divided. There's division between male and female, young and old, south and north, city and country, coast and city, coast and heartland, masks and anti-masks. I mean, everywhere we look, there seem to be something that divides us from one another. And then, add to that, a very real physical division caused by a global pandemic. And we can wonder, why? Why is there such a deep division? Why such deep, deeply felt identities that rend us one from another? But it is, I think, in a word, deeper, if I could say that, deeper than any one 
of the, there's, there's something underlying all of these divisions deeper than any single one of them. And I'm going to suggest to you a particular word, um, and, and this word causes division. In fact, I would argue that this word causes or caused the greatest division that ever existed between man and God. And, and some of you will immediately say sin, and I'll say yes, but that's not the word that I have in mind. That is the general term. No, this word is a specific aspect of our sin that wreaks havoc in our lives and in our relationships. The word is this, and it may, it may not seem obvious to you. The word is deserve. It's a subtle word. It's a word that in and of itself isn't a bad word. And there can be all sorts of ways in which that word is used for good. No one deserves to be mistreated or maligned. Everyone deserves dignity as image bearers of God. We, we can use the language of deserve in very, very good ways. No, the problem is not with the word itself, but with all the assumptions upon which that word often rests when we use that word. It's frequently a motivator for our secret sins or our selfish acts. It's the word that causes us great discontentment in our lives. And it's the word that makes us angry when we can't have something or when things don't go our way or when things are taken away from us. It's the word that we use oftentimes. I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be rich. I deserve love. I deserve a break. I deserve respect. I deserve this job. I deserve a vacation. Or I deserve this illicit affair or this indulgent dessert. I don't deserve to be sick. I don't deserve to suffer. I don't deserve to feel bad about myself. And the list could go on and on and on. It is the language of entitlement, right? Why do we feel entitled to certain things? Why do we feel that kind of, I deserve it's because we worked really hard. It's because we're good people. Because we're, we, we deserve some recompense for the hurt that has been done to us at some point in our life. Or because simply we just suffered and so we deserve a break. There are, there are all sorts of reasons that we might uh, give to excuse ourselves for whatever ill action or thought or but I want to suggest, I think the root of our sense of entitlement actually goes much deeper. In fact, it goes all the way back to our first parents, to Adam and Eve. As fallen creatures, we believe that we have a right to glory. This was Adam and Eve's problem in the garden. They believed that they deserved not only what God had given them, but they deserved to be like God himself. You see, our desire for self-glory isn't ultimately grounded in some great act, deserving act that we've done, or some great character. Rather, it's often grounded simply in our rebellious desire to have what belongs to God alone. Adam and Eve were glory thieves. The sad reality is that prior to the fall, they actually did enjoy glory. They didn't enjoy self-glory. They didn't enjoy the glory that was sort of somehow emanated from them, but they enjoyed God's glory. 
They enjoyed all the blessings of heaven. But then they turned that good desire for enjoyment of God's glory into rebellious envy for a glory that is apart from God. It's what I've been calling self-glory. And they felt that they deserved it. And in their attempt to steal glory from God, they in fact became glory less. They lost glory. They lost the enjoyment of God's glory. And so we, in our way, in their footsteps, strive daily after that self-glory, that give ourselves something that we deserve. But our text this morning reminds us of the greater glory, the glory of God that is ours to enjoy, but it's not because we deserve it. It's quite the opposite. He graciously provides it for us through the cross of Jesus. Friends, the only path out of our sort of entitlement culture and self-glory is through the cross. And we'll unfold what that looks like in our text, that the way of glory is through the cross. Um, So we'll look at this in just two parts. First, our glory, or our Lord Jesus Christ was glorified through the cross. Secondly, those who follow him are also glorified through the cross. So first, our Lord Jesus Christ was glorified through the cross. Peter confesses Christ. Uh, They had uh, left uh, where they were. They were headed now to uh, Caesarea Philippi, and they were on the way. Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city. It was a seat of power, if you will, in the region. And you can think in the back, keep that in the back of your mind as Peter is walking along with uh, Jesus, as he's thinking about where they're headed. Just keep that in the back of the, your mind. Jesus asked them a question. He says, who do people say that I am? And so the disciples said, well, some say John the Baptist. Remember, Herod was one of those. He thought John the Baptist had come back from the dead. Um, some say Elijah or more generally the prophets, uh, sort of a great prophetic uh, uh, teacher. But then Jesus turns it to them. He, he wants to probe their hearts. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, to his credit, is beginning to make sense of the miracles and teachings. He's beginning to see more clearly. If we go back to the story of the healing of the blind man, you'll remember it was in parts, and Peter's the scales are slowly falling away from Peter's eyes, and he's beginning to see more clearly. And it says, you are the Christ. Now, Mark doesn't include any other details of this account, but Matthew, we have a lot more detail to it. After after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus blesses Peter. He says this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And he goes on. Peter's confession is glorious. It's of faith. It was revealed to him by the Father. In all regards, it's a confession that each one of us ought to have ought to make that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed king who has come to establish the kingdom of God and to redeem his people. That's what Peter was confessing. But remember, they're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. I told you to keep that in the back of your mind. And you can't help but think Peter was thinking, eh, we're with the real king. Those Roman authorities, they don't know what's coming. 
We have the Messiah, King Jesus. But Peter, in his understanding, and really for all that the disciples and the crowd's understanding, of what this confession meant to say that he was the Messiah, the Christ, it was truncated, it was limited, it lacked understanding. They didn't fully grasp his mission or his person. They didn't understand what it meant that he was God's anointed servant. And this is why Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. So this is a theme that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, and it's always a little confusing, but it's like, Jesus, why are you always telling people not to say anything? What is this whole idea of the messianic secret? Why was he so secretive about his personhood? Well, I think the problem actually goes back to the fundamental issue that we, we're, we opened with. The Jewish people wanted to, to restore their glory. The glory that they had before all the various oppressive nations ruled over them. And they viewed the Messiah's return as a means to that glory, a means to that end. One commentator states the problem this way, and I think this is helpful. Said this, if Jesus had allowed his glory as the Son of God to shine everywhere, in other words, no messianic secret, if he had permitted to the crowds their delirious enthusiasm, if he had allowed the demons to howl their servile confession, if he had permitted the apostles to divulge everywhere their sensational discovery, the passion would have been rendered impossible. And the destiny of Jesus would have issued in triumph, but a triumph which would have been wholly human and which would have not accomplished the divine plan of salvation. In other words... Had the glory of Christ been revealed in all its splendor, the cross would have been lost. This is why, immediately following the confession of Peter, Jesus reveals his mission. But instead of using the title of Messiah, he uses the more ambiguous title, Son of Man. You see, on the one hand, that title, Son of Man, can simply refer to the humanity of a person the earthliness, the creatureliness. When God speaks to Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel, he calls the prophet son of man. And he says it over and over again. You can go look in the, in the in it. it's a title of humility. It was meant to put Ezekiel in his place under the authority of God, an instrument of God in his hands. God would tell Ezekiel, son of man, speak on my behalf. That's your role in this place. It was a, it was a symbol of humility creatureliness. On the other hand, this title is used to refer to the glorious one in the book of Daniel who approaches the ancient of days, one who had all authority in heaven and earth, who had power. Hear these words from the book of Daniel. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority Glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Is none other than God himself, this Son of Man. So Jesus uses this enigmatic title to describe his mission. And 
What Jesus said to the disciples was shocking. It would have been absolutely shocking. You see, Jesus defined his glory of the, as of the Son of Man. He was talking about what it looked like for him to display the glorious role of the Messiah. And this is how he described it. Hear these, these words uh, from Mark uh, in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Yeah, and, be, and third, three days rise again, though they somehow missed that. But these were harsh words. In no way did it seem like a path to glory, that the Son of Man, that the Messiah would have to suffer and die, not just at the hand of Rome, but at the hand of his own people. It was too much for Peter to bear. Now, if the disciples, and Peter in particular, were paying attention to the Old Testament, they would have recognized that the servant of God, the Messiah, this Son of Man, when He came, would be a suffering servant. Just look at Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Or look at the book of Zechariah. The gentle king on the donkey, the one who people will mourn for, who is pierced. The shepherd who is stricken. Another thing that we note in our text is that it says Jesus spoke very plainly. Uh, the word could be used frankly. It's, a, it's as if everything had been kind of hush-hush about who Jesus was, right? Don't tell anybody. Anytime somebody would recognize Jesus for who he was, whether it was a demon, whether it was his disciples, he'd say, don't, don't, don't tell anyone. Whenever he would perform a miracle, they would say, don't, don't go tell everybody. But now it says that he speaks openly and frankly, plainly for everyone to hear. It was like this sudden blast of openness, right? But it wasn't the kind of blast of openness that people wanted to hear. It was kind of like, and I've used this illustration before, but it was kind of like the, uh, the, the Wizard of Oz when, when Dorothy and her companions went to see the wizard and the curtain is removed. And it's not what they expected. Peter goes so far to pull Jesus aside so far as to pull Jesus aside and to rebuke him because of this frankness, because this was just too much. Now, I think it's easy from our perspective to think, how could Peter not get it? How could the disciples not see it? But as I think as followers of Christ, we also are a bit uncomfortable, get annoyed with Jesus sometimes because he doesn't, he doesn't come down in that burst of lightning. He doesn't come and set everything straight he doesn't, he doesn't show his power and might in the way that we want him to. And this goes back to that feeling that I was talking about at the beginning of deserving. You see, Peter was tired of the suffering of his people, legitimately so. And here was Jesus. Here he was, the Messiah, with them. He could set things straight. He could make things right. But instead, he has to suffer and die. What was Peter missing? What are we missing? I think what we're missing, I think what we're really missing 
is that we are not a deserving people. We're not deserving of God's glory. Instead, Peter and the disciples are much more akin to the Romans in their standing before God. This is the reality that that Peter couldn't see. He thought of himself as one who is deserving of freedom and glory. He was, after all, a part of the people of God. But he missed the reality that he too deserved the judgment from the Messiah. And so too is it with us. You see, we want Jesus to restore our glory on earth. All the wrongs we have endured, we want made right. All the sufferings we have faced, we want undone. All the things we don't have that we feel we deserve, we want Jesus to come and fix it all. And we forget the fundamental reality. We are an undeserving people. We are rebels. We are glory thieves, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. But here's the good news. All glory be to Jesus, who is not only a conquering king, but he is also the suffering servant. Well, Peter privately rebuked our Lord and pulled him aside. Jesus, you shouldn't be saying these things. Jesus turns and publicly rebukes Peter. And it's not a little thing. Some of the harshest words in all of Scripture by Jesus himself are directed toward his disciple Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Here was this great disciple who had just confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. And now he's Satan? How could this be? Well, in that moment that Jesus was pulled aside by Peter when Peter was rebuking his Lord, Peter was tempting Jesus. Take glory for yourself, Jesus. Reveal yourself now. You don't have to suffer. Isn't this what the evil one offered to Jesus in the wilderness when he was being tempted? Here it is again through his disciple. He's saying, you don't have to go through with it. You don't have to suffer. Jesus says to Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the mind of men. Ouch. And this is the problem. The world doesn't understand God's paradigm. It knows nothing of God's paradigm. It can't understand how or why the God of the universe would ever suffer. So why the secrecy of Christ? Why the suffering of the Son of Man? Why didn't he just glorify himself? Why is it that Peter's words were a temptation? The simple answer is, well, Jesus is being obedient to his heavenly Father. God was redeeming a people how he saw fit. The foolishness of the cross is the wisdom of God. But the second answer to this is much more difficult, not because it's hard for us to grasp or understand, but because it's hard for us to swallow. We must come face to face with our own sin, our rebellion, our desire for self-glory. And we have to come face to face with the fact that God had to go to such depths to humble himself in order that we might be saved. It was the only way 
I don't think we like to think about that. Even as believers, even as those who know the grace and mercy of God, we don't like to dwell on the fact that our Creator had to die a shameful, humiliating, gruesome death because of our sin. Because of my sin. We do deserve something. We're glory thieves. We deserve the wrath and curse of God. And the cross of Jesus Christ was the only way to account for that. That was it. That was the only path forward. By what other means could a holy and just God bring salvation to sinful humanity? Only through the suffering of the Messiah. You see, if Christ had simply glorified himself, it would have been easier. In fact, Jesus, before he went to the cross, cried out to God, if there's any way for this cup to pass by, please, please make it, let it pass, but your will be done. Jesus could have called the angels down from heaven. In an instant, glory would have been shown from him and no one would touch him. But he would have been disobedient to his heavenly father. And there would have been no hope of glory for us. No hope of enjoyment of God and his glory. And what Peter and the disciples missed in Jesus' unveiling was the last statement of Jesus, right? That only three after three days he would rise again. They didn't understand. They did not understand that. Peter didn't realize that this suffering was the path to true glory, not, not self-glory, but the enjoyment of the glory of Christ. Peter didn't realize that. How often are we like Peter? The difficulty of following Christ, of forsaking the world, it just overshadows the reality that the cross is the way of glory and that the resurrection happened that there's a surpassing glory like nothing the world has to offer. We get so blinded by the glory of this world and the things that it offers that we fail to see the wonders of the cross and the beauty of the resurrected Lord. Our Lord is glorified through the cross. We know that He rose again on the third day, triumphant over death, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And through that act of humiliation and exaltation, we too, can be glorified. And that's my second and last thing that I want to say. We are glorified through the cross. But that road to glory is painful, just as it was for our Lord. Jesus tells, this, tells us this in verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to deny oneself? You know, we, we, we love to deny ourselves things for a time. It makes us feel like we have control or something. And it's not just denying ourselves, right? Of like, I'm going to deny myself ice cream now so that I can have it later or something to that effect. The denial here is denial of the whole self. In other words, it's the rejection of that language, I deserve 
It is a disconcern with what I want and what I need and what helps me to a concern for what God wants for his will and for his purposes in my life. Just think for a minute how different this is from everything that the world tells you. What does the world tell you? Your ultimate goal is self-fulfillment and happiness. You deserve to be happy. We look at the world and say, oh, well, look how selfish the world is. And then we look at ourselves and say, "Ah, we're not that bad. I'm not that selfish. Look at all the things I do to help people. But I think as Christians, we have to ask some litmus tests. We have to kind of probe ourselves a little bit on this. Because I think even if we don't buy wholesale the, the, the gospel of the world, it still seeps into our life. So here's some litmus tests for us. Do you get upset when things don't go your way? Or do you get upset when others succeed or receive praise, but the things you do go unacknowledged? Do you find yourself more concerned with your own happiness, your own pleasure, your own wealth, than you do concern for fellow Christians? Or for following Jesus? Or concern for his church? Or concern for those who are poor, oppressed, who are suffering? We all desire our own happiness, our own pleasure and fulfillment. And we look for it in myriad ways. But our Lord is saying that if you want to follow me, then it isn't about you anymore. It isn't about your earthly pleasure, your earthly happiness. You may receive blessing in this life because I'm a God who is full and overflowing with grace and mercy, but it's not about you. You must deny yourself because it's all about Christ, about his glory, not yours. So what is the way of the cross? First, we have to disinfect our sentimentality of the cross, right? Realize what Jesus is saying in this moment. He turns to the crowd and he tells them that they have to go on a death march. It was stark and offensive. You know, we often talk about bearing the crosses in our life, crosses of home life or work life or school life or whatever. Jesus is talking about dying a gruesome death by execution of a foreign power, a humiliating death under God's curse. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Certainly, he's letting them know the nature of his own suffering when he says these words, lift up your cross. He's informing them of what's going to happen. They're actually going to literally follow him to the cross. His followers would, some of them, follow similar kinds of deaths physically. Peter follows Christ to the cross. He thought he understood what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah. He followed Jesus all the way there, but there as Christ hung, just as he would, Peter could not deny himself. He couldn't bear his own cross. Rather, he chose to deny Christ. The burden of the cross was too heavy for Peter. Of course, we know that Jesus graciously restores him. But it was too much to bear. This death march is a spiritual cross-bearing. Certainly some people will physically 
die for Christ around this world, Christians suffer physically on account of Christ. We are not called to literal crucifixion, maybe, but we are called to a crucifixion of our self-glory. Verse 35 explains the cross-bearing. If you want to save your life in the end, you will lose it. All people are prone towards self-preservation. God made us love life appropriately, but what our Lord is condemning is the saving of our worldly lives, our worldly desires. What he's saying is that as long as we are worshiping ourselves, trying to save ourselves, please ourselves, glorify ourselves, then ultimately we will lose it. Sure, the things of this world may bring temporary earthly satisfaction, but when we come before the judge, we will have nothing. But the opposite is true. If you deny all that self-glory, if you crucify it, letting all the idolatry fall under the divine curse, being hung on the cross, for Christ's sake, for the sake of the gospel, then you will end up saving your life. But don't, don't misunderstand this. Your life is saved in Christ by his grace. He went to the cross. He suffered and died that you might enter glory. There is a, a little game that I played as a kid. In Maine, we'd go out to an island full of rocks and ocean, and it, the water's really, really cold, <laughs> really, really cold. And what would happen is one person would get in the water, and everyone had to follow in line. And you would kind of go up to your ankles, but the rule was you had to go everywhere the other person went. So if that meant you were a small person, like I was when I was a kid, and your dad was a big person and he was in front, you started to feel the pain and suffering before even that person leading did. You went wherever they went, sometimes into deep water, sometimes up over your waist and even to the point of swimming. But you did it. You followed. It's a game a little game that we play and endure the suffering of the cold temperatures of the water in Maine. It's nothing like the cost of following Jesus. Following Jesus costs everything. But Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms that the costs the cost is worth it because though we lose everything in this world, we gain life. We gain glory. And he shows us this in a little way in the text. I don't know if you notice this in verse 9, verse 1, but he says in chapter 9, verse 1, but he says this, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it comes with power. It's this moment with the enigmatic statement that Jesus says here. What is, what is he talking about? Well, in just a moment, Jesus knew their weakness. He knew they would struggle to follow him to the cross. He, they, he knew that Peter would deny him. And so he says, I'm going to give you a taste of what's to come. And so in the very next section that we'll look at next week, in chapter 9, they go up to a mountain, a few of them, and Jesus is there transformed, transfigured. And they see the Son of Man coming with the clouds and with the voice of God. There is this 
moment when they see the transfigured Lord and all his majesty and glory and they get this small little taste. Peter's ready to build little tents up there and live there forever. That's how great and glorious it was. It was a foretaste of what was to come. But in these words, we are reminded that Christ has accomplished on the cross everything that the Father had planned and that He is bringing us home to glory. As we struggle to put to death our self-glorifying ways, all those words I deserve, as we put all those to death and it costs us something, we look forward to the glory that is ours in Christ and we so cling to Him and cast ourselves upon Him. We follow Him to the cross and we rise with Him in the resurrection and we look forward to the day when He brings us home fully in glory. And that transforms the way we look at one another, the way we treat one another, the way we hold lightly the things of this world, the way we are able then to serve one another and humbly lay our lives down for one another and love one another. All because Jesus went to the cross and in him and through that cross, we enjoy glory. All praise be to Jesus. Amen.